context for us before we read our text. So the book of Isaiah, if you're familiar with it, is often referred to as the fifth gospel. And then what that means is basically that Isaiah tells us a lot about who Christ is and the ministry of Jesus. Isaiah is, in fact, one of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. And like many of the prophets, Isaiah proclaims both immediate judgment and future hope and restoration to his audience. And our passage this morning is kind of a high point in the book of Isaiah, but also it's a high point of the Bible as a whole, in that it portrays many of the themes of the gospel to us, following a series of warnings and woes to God's people. So this passage that we're about to read, it sets up Isaiah's ministry as a whole, but most importantly, it holds out to its listener the glory of God. Let me pray for us before we read. Lord, we do thank you for the ways that you gather your people into your presence to behold your glory. Christ, we pray that as we prepare to read your scriptures, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word and spirit and give us a glimpse of your glory. Remind us, Lord, of the ways that you are faithful and committed to your people committed to make yourself known to us, committed to cleanse us from our sin, and committed to redeem us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that as we read your scriptures, you would speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. And turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned up, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Thank you. 
So something to know about me is I enjoy cooking quite a bit, actually. And being in college ministry, I get a lot of opportunities to cook for students. But I'm also known as a person who can overdo it on the seasoning sometimes. And what I mean by that is I can be a little too generous, whether it's salt or red chili flakes. And actually yesterday we had a Bible study with students and I was accused of putting too many red chili flakes in the pasta. So there's lots of evidence to confirm that. Well, what happens when you get a little too generous with the seasoning is you find yourself kind of in a pickle. And you you have a couple of options. You can leave it as it is, just be okay with it. You can try to add something else and hope that that will fix the problem. Or you can choose to start over. And a couple of weeks ago, I was making a tomato sauce with some friends. And I was a little too generous with the salt. And in a moment, I decided, I can fix this. I felt committed to saving the sauce. So I added a little sugar. Nope. So I added some lemon juice. Nothing. So I decided to add some more tomatoes. But even that did not work. As hard as I tried, there was no hope in saving the sauce. It was defiled. Any person with working taste buds would taste this sauce and be offended by it. So in a story where a bunch of sauce ended up on the floor, a friend was very mad, and there was a trip to a store, I decided that I just needed to start over. Well, in our passage today, God is addressing a people that has been defiled not by salt, but by sin. And God is addressing an unclean people. And there's a question that arises here. How will God save this people? How will he deal with their defilement? Will he scrap the project of redeeming his people? Will he settle with an unperfect people? Or will he somehow, some way, resolve the defilement of his people? And what we'll see in this time is that there's, we enter into a time where God and his people are growing in division. There is a growing division between God and Israel. And God is continuously offended by the sin of the people, and he's displeased by their sin. But in this time of division, God calls Isaiah, condescends to Isaiah, and commissions Isaiah with a message of judgment and hope. Isaiah is given a vision of glory, and he is told God's plan for his people. So our big idea today is behold the glory of God. Behold the glory of God. And I'm going to, going to divide our scripture into a couple of different parts for us. The first part will be the revealed glory of the Lord, verses 1 through 4. The need for atonement, verses 5 through 7. And the devastating message, verses 8 through 13. The revealed glory of the Lord, the need for atonement, and the devastating message. So jumping into our first section, the revealed glory of the Lord. Isaiah begins our passage with a reference to the death of King Uzziah. And Isaiah, in fact, is the only prophet in the entire New Testament that uses death as a marker for history. So he uses death to date the events of his prophecy. Uzziah's life is marked by a long and prosperous reign, but it ends in God's displeasure and judgment. 
Isaiah is a historian who is using the death of Uzziah perhaps to relate it to the spiritual condition of the people. They have experienced prosperity, but it is ending with God's displeasure. So in a time of spiritual darkness, death, and God's displeasure, Isaiah sees the throne room of God, God sitting on his throne with the robe, the train of his robe filling the temple. So in light of a flawed king, Isaiah sees the Lord of hosts, the true king, high and lifted up. And in this, we see that the Lord alone reigns over the earth. Kings will rise and fall, but the Lord reigns forever. And in this vision, the Lord is surrounded by seraphim, angelic beings that represent the glory of the Lord. These creatures are frightful and glorious, yet they humble themselves before the Lord. The text says that they cover their face and feet with their wings, covering themselves before the holiness of God. These angelic beings call to one another in worship of the Lord with voices that shake the foundation of the temple. The song of the seraphim mirrors the same song that we read in Revelation 4 with the threefold proclamation of the Lord's holiness. This emphasizes the Lord's set-apartness, but not simply his otherness from creation, but most specifically his moral purity and perfection. According to Matyer, a theologian that specializes in Isaiah, he talks about God's holiness is his hidden glory. And the glory of God is God's all-present holiness. So even for the prophet, God's glory remains hidden or veiled. In verse 4, Isaiah recalls the smoke that fills the house of the Lord. Through the Old Testament, when the Lord reveals himself to his people, it's veiled with smoke. On Mount Sinai, a cloud covered the mountain, keeping the people and even Moses from being able to see the fullness of God's glory. In the holy of holy places, the tent was filled with the smoke of incense that veiled God's glory even from the high priest as it sat on the mercy seat of God. Even in this awe-striking account of Isaiah's vision, the vision is veiled. It's mysterious and hidden. And the human author struggles to describe the Lord himself. If you notice, Isaiah doesn't even mention the qualities or characteristics of God. Instead, he describes what is surrounding God. The throne, the seraphim, the Lord's robe, and the smoke. Human words fail to do justice in describing the revealed glory of God. This is the Lord. He is high and lifted up. He is distant not in relationship to his people, but in his character. God draws Isaiah to himself, though. And through this vision, Isaiah struggles to put to words what he sees. The vision that Isaiah has, it's veiled, yet it's still grand. Isaiah struggles to articulate what he sees, not because the revelation is limited, but rather because it is immense. The vision overwhelms Isaiah, and he is undone. We see here that even though God is displeased with Israel, he does not give up on them. God is committed to his people and is committed to reveal himself to them. God is committed to condescend in order, order that his people can know him so they can see his glory and holiness. 
He is committed to allow the people to behold his glory. At this point in the sermon, we can ask ourselves the question, how does God reveal himself to me? Should I expect to see a vision of God similar to how Isaiah did? The answer is simply no. (laughs) We should not expect to see a vision of God in the ways that Isaiah did. But in what ways does the Lord reveal himself to us? The Lord reveals his glory to his people through his word. In the preaching of the word, God's word is accompanied by the Spirit to illuminate the eyes and hearts of God's people to God's glory. Christian, are you studying the scriptures? Do you study them daily? Do you recognize the way that God is revealing himself to you through it? When you study the Bible, is it a rote practice? Or do you approach that time expectant, expectant to see God more clearly, to know that God would reveal himself to you as you study his word? And I even want to ask parents, how do you help your children in this process? How are you helping to make known the glory of the Lord to your kids? Are you studying your scriptures with them? Are you encouraging your children to study the word? Do you discuss the Bible together as a family? Maybe you feel intimidated by this idea, but perhaps you feel far too busy to commit to reading scripture regularly. Maybe you feel the lack of discipline, or you just don't really know where to start. And my encouragement to you when it comes to reading scripture is that you should set a goal for yourself, something that's stretching, but not something that's going to overwhelm you or burn you out. You need to see your need to meditate on the word of God day and night, but also recognize that scripture is meant to give us life, not to be a burden on us. And as we study the scriptures, it gives us vocabulary and grammar in order to proclaim God's glory and to put to words what we experience each Lord's Day. Another thing to consider is how do you prepare to worship the Lord on Sundays? Do you recognize that each Sunday the Lord calls you into his presence as a church in order to behold his glory? That is why we are here today is to behold the glory of God through his word. Even now, you sit before a holy God who has called his people into worship. And it is in this holy dialogue of worship that the Lord is revealing himself to his people. And as we continue on in our passage, we will see that the holiness of God actually leads to a dilemma. In and of themselves, people are unable to approach God. God's holiness exposes the uncleanness of man. As their sin is exposed, people will have different responses. Not everyone will respond to God's glory the same. And some will see their sin, their need for atonement, while others will be hardened and blinded to their sin. So we're going to move on to our next section, the need for atonement. In verse 5, it says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. As Isaiah sees the Lord, he is undone. The text says that Isaiah is lost. And the word here for lost, it's more severe than what we think. Other translations used ruined, which is probably more accurate. But the word that Isaiah is using here refers to the ominous silence that follows a devastating event. You can imagine a family that's left speechless after their family home is destroyed by a tornado. You can imagine the silence of a bloodied battlefield after a night filled with gunfire and explosions. The silence marks that something devastating has happened. Isaiah is left devastatingly silent as he beholds the glory of God. The holiness of God exposes his sin and his uncleanness. His uncleanness leaves him unable to participate in the heavenly chorus of the seraphim singing praises to the Lord. He can't even adore the Lord from afar. The combination of God's holiness and Isaiah's uncleanness is devastating, and it's dangerous for Isaiah. So at Harvest, we often like to talk about God's holiness as a campfire. It's very different to sit around a campfire on a cool, brisk evening, enjoying its warmth, versus sitting in the middle of the flames. In both situations, nothing actually changes about the fire. The only thing that changes is our relationship to the fire. In the estate of righteousness, people can enjoy the holiness of God and delight in it. But in the estate of sin, God's holiness is a consuming fire that exposes and condemns them. Holiness and uncleanness are a volatile combination. And this actually, as I was studying this, it reminded me of freshman year undergrad chemistry class. And chemistry was interesting because some days on a rare occasion, rather than having to do a bunch of math, you got to see something catch on fire or explode. And that was very cool being a freshman guy. Um, But in one class I remember particularly, the professor took potassium, which we all know is pretty important for us. The doctor says, eat a banana, that will help you, right? Potassium is good. But the professor took a sliver of potassium and he dropped it in water. And all of a sudden the potassium caught on fire and then suddenly it exploded. That was pretty cool being a freshman guy. (laughs) But this is kind of what it's like for sin to be in the presence of holiness. It's reactive, it's volatile, it's dangerous. When we mix the holiness of God and the uncleanness of man, it is dangerous for man. Isaiah is only able to confess his uncleanness before the Lord. Yet recognize what the Lord does. See how the Lord responds to Isaiah. Under the command of the Lord, a seraphim brings a coal from the altar to take away Isaiah's guilt and uncleanness, to atone for his sin. The Lord condescends to Isaiah, taking away his uncleanness, so that Isaiah can behold God's glory safely. The coal represents the forgiveness that only the Lord can offer him. It represents the fire of God's wrath that burns up the sacrifices. 
It represents the altar of God where the sins of the people were atoned for. And it represents the sacrifices that allowed the people to draw near to the Lord. Isaiah is an unclean man. He comes from an unclean people, and his response is one of devastation. But the Lord is gracious. He is committed to take away the sins of his people, the sins of Isaiah, to cleanse him so that Isaiah can behold the glory of the Lord properly. Again, you see God's initiation. God, in one way, calls Isaiah into his presence, and in another way, he initiates by cleansing the sins of Isaiah. The Lord alone is able to do this. He alone can take away Isaiah's sin and the people that he comes from. So when I cook and I accidentally add a bunch of salt to some dish, I can only add something to cover it up. But the Lord, he has another option that we do not have. He can actually remove the defilement of his people. Christian, recognize that the Lord is committed to forgive. He is committed to forgive the sins of the people who confess their sins to him. As we approach God in worship, our sins and uncleanness are exposed We can recall the ways that we've sinned against God and the people that he has placed in our lives. Perhaps this morning you even feel undone by the weight of your sin. Perhaps you feel shame for the ways that you have been unfaithful to God and the things that he has placed in your life. Maybe you feel that sin hinders your relationship with the Lord and it hinders your relationship with other people. Maybe you feel burdened by the sins that no one else in this room can see, the sins that only you and the Lord know. Christian, turn to the Lord. Recognize his commitment to forgive. In 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. People who see their sin, who turn to the Lord in repentance, can be assured of God's grace and mercy to forgive. While Isaiah sees his need for atonement, not everyone will have this response. God forgives those who recognize their sins and repent. God softens Isaiah's heart and is committed to forgive him. But will God do this for the rest of the people? This is the question we're left with. Will God soften everyone as he has done for Isaiah? And next we will see that God has a devastating message for Israel. So moving on to our next section, verses 8 through 13. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. 
And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. As Isaiah encounters the grace of God, he is changed by it. The Lord calls Isaiah out of an unclean people, and he sets him apart as a herald of God's word. The Lord commissions Isaiah with the ministry of the gospel. But surprisingly, the ministry of Isaiah is to harden the hearts of the people. Here we see that there are two responses to the revealed glory of God. For some, it will call them to repentance, but to others, it will harden their hearts. The message that Isaiah is given is told to us in verse 9, and its purpose is told to us in verse 10. Although people will hear and see the glory of God, they will not understand and they will fail to perceive. Externally, they will receive the message, but internally, in their hearts, they will fail to comprehend it. We see that there is an external call but we need an internal call in order to respond to that. Isaiah's ministry is meant to make the hearts of the people dull, to make their ears heavy and to blind their eyes. And this is what we often call the preacher's dilemma, actually. There's a name for it. The very message that calls people to repentance is also the same message that hardens them. The sin that is exposed by the word of God, in fact, blinds them from even being able to see it. The sin doubles down, retaliates, hardens, blinds. The effect that sin has on a person is all-encompassing. Every faculty of man is corrupted by their sin. And sin causes people to refuse the word of God because of that. The word of God promises future judgment. Some will hear the word of the Lord and turn and be healed, while others will be more heavily hardened by it and continue down a path of destruction. In verse 11, Isaiah asks the question, how long will this hardening go on for? And what will be the final results of this hardening? The Lord responds that the people will continue to reject his word until the land is destroyed and the people are sent into exile. The sole purpose for the destruction of the land is because the people heard the word of the Lord and rejected it. God is committed to his people, but he is also committed to his promises of judgment. In fact, God's commitment to judge is the embodiment of his justice. God does not make empty promises. Thus, when he promises judgment for unrepentance, he keeps his word. We worship a God who keeps his promises. He is a God who is jealous for his own glory, and he shares his glory with no one. Thus, God is also glorified in the devastation of Israel. Although God atones for the sins of Isaiah, this will not be true for most of Israel. But we have to recognize that embedded in this message of doom, there is a glimmer of hope. 
The message of hope, it's like a vein of gold that's embedded in a black rock. Although God will destroy his people, a tenth will remain. Although the tree will be burned up, the stump will give birth to new life. If you like gardening, or if you have any knowledge of gardening, you can imagine that you're cutting back a garden bed filled with weeds. And to your surprise, you find that inside that garden bed filled with weeds, nestled inside there, there are flowers waiting for the garden to be pruned and cleaned up. And God's judgment is kind of like this refining process where it reveals who is true Israel. And as it reveals and refines and prunes this garden bed of weeds, it gives opportunity and room for new life. Through judgment, the chaff is burnt up, but the faithful remain. But why is it that the seed will be the stump? This is a question we should ask ourselves. The seed portrays this biblical theme of an offspring who will fulfill the promises of God. We can recall Genesis 3.15, where it talks about God promising that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Or 2 Samuel 7, where God promises that David's offspring will reign forever. And this image is actually continued in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 11.1, it says that there is a stump of Jesse that shall become a shoot for the people of God. Our passage begins with the death of a king, but it ends with the promise of a future king, a future seed through which God will give new life to his people. And this is actually confirmed in the New Testament. Jesus himself interprets the vision that Isaiah has here in chapter 6. In John 12, 40, Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, 9, and he explains that Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of Jesus and spoke of him. Isaiah beheld Christ exalted, high and lifted up. He beheld the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ. But what did Isaiah actually see? Isaiah saw the Lord exalted and lifted up on the cross. In John 12, Jesus is approaching his death. He prays to the Father, recognizing that the hour for him to die is approaching. He prays that the Father would be glorified through his death. And in verse 32, Jesus says that when he is lifted up from the earth, he will draw many people to himself and that this was to show by what death he would die. Jesus high and lifted up is Jesus hanging on the cross. The exalted Lord is Jesus bearing the wrath of God. The glory of God is displayed in the humility and suffering of Christ. From our New Testament reading this morning, we are reminded that God chose what is foolish in the world to destroy the wisdom of this world. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
to the perishing the gospel of Jesus will harden their hearts, causing them to reject Christ and his grace. Jesus did many signs, and yet they still did not believe. But to those who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. The gospel is a double-edged sword. To some, it will offer life and healing, whereas to others, it will lead to their destruction and perpetual hardness. So how do we respond? How do we respond to the gospel of Jesus? Is the gospel of Jesus good news to you? Or does it continue to land on deaf ears and blind eyes? Will you continue to walk in your sin? Or will you turn to Christ as the only way through which you can be saved? Do not allow another day to go by where you allow your sin to continue hardening you. Take your sin seriously. See the ways that it is killing you and turn to Christ and find healing. Those who turn to the Lord will be forgiven, and the Lord promises to cleanse them from all of their sins. But perhaps you're a seasoned Christian. You've walked with the Lord for many years, but perhaps the gospel seems to not be good news anymore. Maybe you feel like there's something that's missing for you. Recognize that the only plea that we have before a holy God is the atonement that comes to us through Christ. There is nothing else that we can boast in before the Lord. And Jesus' death on the cross is the only thing sufficient to reconcile us. Although we might go through seasons of hardness, we can be assured of God's commitment to his people. The Lord is committed. He is committed to draw his people near to him, to reveal his glory, and to atone for the sins of his people. God's people can behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces. Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord sitting on the throne in the heavenly places. But friends, our vision of the Lord is better. We have the scriptures more fully confirmed. We do not need a vision from heaven because what we have is better than what Isaiah had. Where Isaiah had a sliver of understanding veiled with mystery, we see the full picture. We know that the king of glory is none other than Jesus himself. In Revelation 4, I referred to that earlier, it makes known to us that the Lord sitting on his throne is Christ. So do you know the privilege that it is to behold the glory of Christ through his written word? Do you recognize that what you have is better than what even the prophets and the apostles had themselves? For us, the mystery is revealed, the purpose of God is made known, and the pictures are made clear. And we can use what we know in the New Testament to better understand what even Isaiah saw in his own day. And this is why we study the scriptures. As we study God's word, we grow in our ability to see the glory of God. Our study of scripture throughout the week prepares us to behold God's glory each Lord day, Lord's day, today, now, as we sit before our King high and lifted up. So my invitation for you this morning is, behold the glory of the Lord through the cross. Amen. Let's pray.
diz a 